this is why no one cares about rock now because er we can't get people to get over this nostalgic backwards looking baloney Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at the Daily Guru and at Get Ear Fuel. And you can find the podcast in the iTunes, Google Play stores, and wherever fine podcasts are found under Ear Fuel. Apologies for the long delay since the last episode. There is this crud going around New York City. And it pretty much put me completely out of commission for a few weeks. Much to the delight of my family, I couldn't speak for a few days. But now I have my voice back. There are going to be a ton of episodes this month because I have a lot to catch up on. So prepare your ears for lots of awesome stuff. What you heard at the top was part of my conversation with J. Roddy Walston, frontman of... Well, I mean, he's the frontman of J. Roddy Walston in the business. One of the best damn live bands out there these days. We talked at length about artistic integrity and kind of what that looks, sounds, and feels like in 2018, along with discussing the band's most recent album, their writing process, just tons of other stuff. But before we get to that chat, a quick album review. The record I want to look at today is the brand new release from Prana Crafter, and it's called Bodhi Cheetah's Choice. To be honest, I kind of don't know where to start on this one. It's a bit tough to explain or to genrefy this one to make up a word. All I know is I like it a lot. This is a fully instrumental record that's some combination of acid rock, psychedelic, folk, blues, experimental, and I don't know, is soundtrack a genre? Because it's kind of got this very cinematic, very organic, earthy feel to it. So I suppose it's kind of the soundtrack for a lonely walk through the woods as the sun is fading and it's kind of one of those creepy or mysterious wooded forest type things. There are actually a couple moments where, and stick with me here, I think that if trees and plants and the creatures of the woods could have a jam session, you know, kind of like when all the humans went away, it might sound like this record. It's, it's tough to explain that this is really the sound, the essence, and the feeling of the forest. There are moments also where it feels a bit sci-fi in this very uniquely cool way. Even without words, this is a complete emotional journey as the album progresses, as there's almost this unspoken theme or single thread running throughout the whole record. Musically, it has it all. It's got deep grooves, ambient meditations, these gorgeous folk pieces, and then there are just these grand explosions of sound and feeling, these, these roaring fuzzy guitars that are really going to move you. From beginning to end, the guitar work is just outrageously good, and it manages to be loud and in your face only when it needs to be. It's got that great balance. Also, there's so much emotion within the guitar leads, and you can tell that he's giving in fully to the moment and the spirit of the sound. I know I, know I might be getting a little hippy-dippy and spiritual here, but this record is a really cool experience. I'm not kidding. The album is almost alive. You, you can feel this record breathing. You take that with the fact that all of these sounds, when they combine together, they're super captivating and they totally surround you. And you're, you're, you're definitely transported by the atmospheres that he creates on this record. Ultimately, I think this is going to be one of those hidden gem albums that you love to turn people onto. And they're like, oh, I've heard everything. And you're like, have you heard 
Bodhi Cheetah's choice and be like, oh, what's that? And you put it on and it'll kind of silence in a room because everyone will just be in awe of the sounds and people are going to be like, wow, thank you for turning me onto this. I'm, I'm serious. Like I said, this is just a very special record and words don't do it justice. So check it out. Prana Crafter, P-R-A-N-A-C-R-A-F-T-E-R. And the album is called Bodhi Cheetah's Choice. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Moving on. The other week, I had the chance to sit down with Jade Roddy Walston while he and the band were in town doing live shows supporting their most recent album, Destroyer of the Soft Life. Love that title. The conversation covered pretty much every aspect of the creative process as well as the realities of the current music scene. So sit back and let's dig in. So the new record... Uh, for me, it had such a wide range of sounds on it. For me, I heard elements of everything from Nine Inch Nails to some reggae. There were Irish undertones in there, Thin Lizzy. Was it purposeful to incorporate so many different elements this time around where kind of the other records were, were a little more straightforward? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely that was part of the fun and benefit of having the studios. We were kind of able to explore a lot more stuff sonically. Um, we were always... We've always been influenced by a really w- wide range of stuff, you know. There's been moments in lots of songs where, you know, maybe someone thinks it's just like a little weird drum break, but it was actually like something where I was like, oh, we should do like a drum, like everything drop, like Paul's Boutique style, sure, kind sure. of whatever yeah, yeah. kind of thing. But it's in the middle of like a country style kind of slide, like, you know, super over-the-top fried cooking kind of song <laughs> or whatever. Maybe that's just been for me, but to, it's it has been... A thing where we've always had lots of influences. We've mm-hmm. never been a band that's like been stuck in time or trying to time travel back to this place. And it's like, oh, what if we could forget that anything has happened? Sure, post blah blah blah. You know, I don't want to. You know, um, and that was even honestly not just the time and the space to get to do that, but like we were in more, more in control. So like, mm-hmm. as a band, if you roll into a studio and you have a producer who's got this certain vision or aesthetic and particularly is you know not like a band that's like oh you've got a year to make a record but it's like you roll out and it's like you got a week and a half to two weeks right, right. And you Here, here's your time frame it. go do you want to spend the first four days bucking this one this guy who's kind of the person with his foot on the gas pedal or not mm-hmm. like saying like oh you've got us all wrong you know like that's not we're not that kind of band you know we're, like we we're like uh, we're talking on the microphone we're you know very we're kind of a wide spectrum thing not just this very narrow thing sure you know? and so that that was uh definitely it was intentional and possible i guess mm-hmm. in a way it hadn't been before so you guys just felt like you had all because you did you had all the freedom in the world and so you see this as kind of the exact record you guys wanted to make yeah yeah i mean it was kind of at the time, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, we failed on this one and this one. And we sure. had to do this one or something. Um, but we definitely got to like fully deep dive on our vision of, of the stuff or the songs, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's been other songs and other recordings and other parts of other records that I would say were like, that's exactly what I hope the song would be in the end, you know. But this one, yeah, I kind of feel like we kind of kicked the the door's pretty wide open as far as I I doubt anyone could guess where we go next sure. you know if you looked at like this one to this one to now you know one two three now four is like this like 
I don't think it could be an easy, you know, like, oh, we one plus one equals two. They're mm-hmm. going to do that kind of thing. So, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of fans, they want to hear in a way the band do the same thing every time. You know, they're, they're yeah. that's why, quote, I love this band. So right. um, have you how do you guys kind of strike that balance between, you know, hey, we know the fans kind of just want us to do the same old thing, but artistically it might not be as fulfilling. I mean, my opinion on that is like that we're artists and we're not waiters. Yeah. So I kind of. I don't I like really that. care what people want. I mean, yeah. I do in the sense that, like, you know, I, I would say probably the place where you strike the balance the most is the live show then, you know. So it, it has been funny in sort of seeing some people go like, well, I really, I love this record. I was like, okay, well, we wrote that record. Well, what about when I come see you live? We're going to play songs off that record live, you know. I mean, like, <clears throat> even when we put that record out, whatever one it might be that people love, even the new one, it's yeah. like we don't do the new one front to back live so i'm not really sure why people would i don't know what bands people have seen where they maybe that's what like big pop bands do is uh-huh. like oh this is my new record and i only play that song those 10 songs and there's dance numbers and that's all i can do so eh. like i don't you, yeah it's like i don't know we're, we're still that band but we're plus now hey, you progressing know? yeah find a new thing yeah so the thing is, it goes the other way, too, you know? There's only so many times that a band can make the same record over and over again and still stay relevant, or... It gets to the point where people kind of go like, I wish you just stopped at number two. Sure. Because four was fine, then there was the one song on, like, seven that was okay, or whatever, and then, like, I, it's starting to be embarrassing, and Yeah, bands whatever, that overstay you know? their welcome a little yeah. bit. Particularly, again, if you're just going to do the same thing mm-hmm. over and over. So. so since you guys had all of this this freedom then, did your creative process, your songwriting process change at all? Yeah, this one was different. I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, everybody was in different places, sort of. We were less like just a touring band that kind of was pausing to mm-hmm. make a record or something and more kind of four guys that were at home like working on stuff. And so it kind of, it changed the dynamic a good bit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to get outside of the process that I was in. Sure. There's always been sort of this thing where our band functions sort of more like four guys working together when we're writing, you know, rather than four guys who are in a band and doing it at the same time sort of in the live context. So there would be like, there's always a certain level of like, all right, let's all break off and then like send in ideas and kind of mess with it. That, I guess, is a similar function that the band had on this record. Different was I kind of approached songwriting much more like 9 to 5 on this this record. Like, I kind of got up in the morning, had a new kid, and sort of was dealing, learning sure. <laughs> to sort of be a dad. Yeah. And then it was like, and now I'm going to work, honey, and kind of had my coffee and would go to work and kind of be like all right now it's time to write that's what you do when you this is what i do apparently when i go to work is is write music or whatever so that that definitely changed my whole process it was kind of before dependent on some idea of like are you inspired or not or whatever and it's like that's not really what the question was anymore it was Mm -hmm. like whatever whatever it is that you can get done that day do it in the work time so like Sometimes that was like, man, I'm on fire. I'm just like writing lyrics and or songs, you know, coming up with weird chord changes yeah. that I'm stoked about. And other times it was like, I got nothing in that gas tank. I'm going to come up with 
a background idea on a song that's already there or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So it was a lot more structured for me, which I, if someone had said like five years ago, like, would you like music and art to be like a lot more structured and sort of like this thing that you go and do? I'd have been like, nah, that sounds like a job. I'm terrible. Sure. But kind of was motivating and, and sort of gave you this thing of like, well, did I do anything today? Did I get anything done? And you could kind of go like, I started at this time and I started, stopped at this time and yes or no. And there would be these days where I was like, oh my gosh, so like it's going, like it's just coming. But I wanted to get home to see my wife right. and kid. Yeah. So like, it'd just be like this frantic, like last two hours of just like, ah, I gotta get, uh, I didn't it. finish it or, yeah. you know, whatever. And, yeah, because the kid doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Particularly six-month-old doesn't care. I, gotta, I have a four-month-old at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> four-month-old, so the hoe. There's a kid. Is, He's small. That is a newborn, the parent of a newborn's uh, sort of sentence formation for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, the point gets across. Yeah. Um, so with, with your songwriting process, do you always start from different places, or do you always kind of have the lyric first, the idea first, the you know, the, the melodies no, there's no, yeah, there's not really a rule for me. I kind of, um, sometimes it's a little bit of that, like, Paul McCartney rule of thought of, like, the vibe, the feeling, the syllable rhythm is more important than actually what you're saying. And other times it's like, I really want to say this. Mm-hmm. How can I figure out how to fit it in? It's very, this rhythm, or the this record to me is very rhythmatic and, and definitely took a lot of work to, like, place the syllables of statements in, mm-hmm. inside of the context of the amount of time I had to get it there or whatever. And on top of that was really focusing on trying to deliver like more legible vocals than mm-hmm. on previous records. So there was, again, even more, uh, there wasn't just like, did you hit the note or did you kind of get it out or yeah. whatever? It was more like kind of really relearning how to sing in front of a microphone and and that affected even how I was I guess writing in a way because it's like eh, you know you probably could gather what I'm saying in the first to maybe third listen on this record whereas most of the other records you probably had to look at a lyric sheet to kind of sure. do it so maybe, I, I don't know. and and in that I read that you guys kind of made a purposeful move to record digitally yeah. With this record, which is, um, it's not something a lot of bands go for these days. Everybody wants to kind of at least put out the facade that oh, we're we're keeping it super organic, and yeah. you know we recorded on eighty year old four inch yeah. tape. And we did that. I mean, we did that. Yeah. So was it was there a reason you guys wanted to go digital this time? Because it doesn't make a difference. It like it's a total farce. It's like yeah. It's like if you have good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sales pitch. Yeah by either the band or the producer that they've done something that makes a difference. If you haven't written a good song, it does not matter if it's on tape. Right. And if you haven't performed it well, it doesn't matter if it's on tape. And if you don't have decent, like, even if you have decent microphones, that still doesn't matter if you don't have a good song and a good performance of that song. And you have that thing where people kind of go like, oh yeah, you guys could be good but you just haven't recorded the right way or something, you know? And it's just a total lie. It's, 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 um, that, that is not, that's not to say that there, there aren't still some pieces of gear that it's like that thing that was done, you know, it's like picking up 
a really special guitar. Yeah. Is a guitar special because it was made in 1960? No. But there might be that one guitar that is actually really rad. Like the electronics have been sweated on just enough and the wood is the right tree and whatever. Like there are special pieces of music equipment, but they're not special because they were made at a certain time or whatever, you know, like we were one of the last bands to record at Sound City. We didn't use the board. Like, you didn't use the Neve. We used it to monitor playback, mm -hmm. and it caught on fire while we were doing it. Like, it wasn't... It was fine. Sure. But no one even knows that we recorded there. No one likes our record because some mystical Sound City experience that we had. Right. If anyone likes that record, it and that it's the self-titled record, um, but they like it because they like the songs and they like performances. They don't they don't care. Yeah. That's it's it's something for a journalist to write about or for a band to brag about or whatever, but it doesn't make it makes if anything a negative impact on your ability to be creative because you're hamstring yourself to be like let's pretend it's 1965 or 71 or 82 or whatever. Like you can't hear a tape machine if it's functioning well. That's the long and short of it. Thriller was recorded on a tape machine. Yep. That's perfect sounding recording. Like Toto recorded on a tape machine. Mm -hmm. Are you sitting there going like, woo, so fat and awesome or, you know, blown out and distorted. Like they're great working machines that function nicely and record things with headroom at a place where you hopefully can't hear the hiss. And then if you can't hear the hiss, they had things to get rid of that, you know, like. I don't know, I guess. My yeah. point is, tape machines don't matter. Like, gear doesn't matter. It's songs and performances that actually matter. Yeah, the board is not going to give you different talents and write a song for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, engineers that will pitch you on how you should use that kind of stuff, and that's why it makes a difference to come record with them, are the same guys that'll be laugh with you, like, Blow Blow came in and said, can you maybe sound like Jimi Hendrix? It's like, no, Jimi Hendrix sounded like Jimi Hendrix, not his guitar or his amp or whatever. And it's like... But they don't take that same line of reasoning and apply it to, yeah, your record's not going to sound like Big Star or the Beatles because you can't write that kind of song or perform you're not that, that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that time period either. Yeah, you're right. Not, you're not writing Hopefully it wouldn't things. be. That's, yeah. I mean, that's the other, there was a major, we've already kind of referenced this, but like we were all, never a band that want, has had any sort of like, you know, claim towards wanting to reference backwards in a serious way or like a major way we liked stuff that maybe was not popular or we had influences that weren't as like modern as some people but like the whole the, I'm, I'm just like probably even more so than when we were making this past record I'm bummed on how backwards looking particularly rock is at this point and how mm -hmm. like anyone who gets attention it's like oh it's just like blah 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 or they dress like whoever or they're writing basically just a motown song yeah and it's like who cares this is why no one cares about rock now because er we can't get people to get over this nostalgic backwards looking like baloney that is just crippling <laughs> rock bands it's like if you do something new People were like, oh, man, what you lost that heart. It's like, I guess. Or I'm expressing it in a different way, you know. So that was probably even a technological side of our artistic sort of mental shift of, like, 
we live right now. Yeah. I won't. I don't know if I know what the sound is right now, but I want to sound like I'm alive right now and not pretend like I some other time period, whatever that might be. I don't want to ignore the past. Sure. But you can always do a cover song. Right. Or, yeah, you are influenced, you know. Like, you are somebody who goes, like, I've heard this record and this one, and then 10 years later and in between and things that you would never think related, and I like all of it. Yeah. It's not that you've never heard Led Zeppelin. Right. But Led Zeppelin made their records. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a conversation we had multiple times of kind of like, they're, you know, we'd be in the studio. I'm, I'm sitting next to Steve who hasn't spoken yet, but... Um, <laughs> the mute drummer. Yeah. But, you know, there would be these moments where someone's like, well, why would you want to do that? That's not what Stax did. I'm like, I don't want to compete with Stax. I don't, like, Stax did it. That's that's that was done. It was amazing. Yeah, they're great records. I'll never make a better Stax record than a Stax record, yeah. and I wouldn't want to. Cause who cares? Twenty five, you know, like, I had twenty five years of other people dissecting it, and then my ten years of dissecting it, and I was able to come up with a formula that made me able to write one better song than Stax did. Who cares? Like, you had the benefit of watching Stax do it and mm-hmm. could analyze their mistakes or whatever, if you want to call them that. Like. It just doesn't matter. The rock is on its way out if it can't get over its past. That is where I'm at with it. And honestly, if we or any kind of rock fan can't get, and bands who are, you know, inside the context of rock can't get over that hump, good. It should go away. It should be done. Like, it's not offering anything new. It's just regurgitating the same stuff over and over again. It's not art anymore. It's just like a Taco Bell menu kind of getting chopped mm-hmm. up and swirled around and handed to you in a different way with a new name. And it's like, yeah, it's basically still just chicken and cheese or whatever, you know. Like, Yeah, that's what I was hoping is kind of the, the world climb of the last few years might reignite, you know, the passion for creating something new. I was expecting a whole bunch of new punk rock to happen and things yeah. like that, and it's just been more of the same. Yeah. You know, because unfortunately that, that's what a lot of the companies are pushing is like, here, you liked this record. Here's another record that sounds exactly like yeah. it, but it's a different person. We're we're on like a five year like I remember when I was in junior high having that moment where you kinda and I was in junior high in like early nineties, but mm-hmm. it was kind of somewhere right in there I kinda had that revelation of the like cultural loop or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, and, and whatever at the time it was kind of like whatever, I don't know, every twenty years or every thirty years the thing comes back. And now it's like I, two years ago, I was hearing people being like, "Emo's coming back," and yeah. I was like, "Why? It just—it just went away." <laughs> right? We haven't—we haven't had time to miss it yet. Yeah, yeah. So the loop is short. I mean, you, you think about it in the context of movies and stuff. You know, it's like they've rebooted Spider-Man like five times in the last yeah. decade, or yeah, you know, it's—it's it's a weird. And, and I think it—you know—to some level, it, it there is that thing of like fans. I don't know that they are kind of being encouraged to kind of just look to the past and then it's a little bit that thing of like instead of people being individuals and just doing what they want they kind of are playing to the crowd and are going well what do you guys want you know because the feedback is so immediate right now yeah like i think that social media and the internet is horrible for art i should not know whether or not you like my record at least not within seconds of it coming out. Sure, like, right, right. You put out a single, and, you know, three minutes and 12 seconds later, you've got a ton of comments yeah, on it. Yeah, And in a way that people expect that you will see it, 
and you know also more than that that you should acknowledge it it's like hey you guys i hate you it's like thanks dude thanks for taking part of your day out to say that or whatever you know but yeah i mean i, I don't want to be the guy that's just like oh the internet's terrible and everything mm-hmm. new is terrible or whatever but um i don't think the internet is necessarily good in that way of like when you think when so that way of like someone did something they went out on a limb and potentially they suffered some abuse for it whatever you know grow thicker skin yeah but the more sinister way of like we did something people kind of liked it we can actually come up with metrics to see what it is they liked about it and make songs about it more more songs amplifying the good parts and getting yeah. into thing you know it's like I mean that's just toilet paper I don't yeah, know what, like what wow. are you, you know you're it's dangerous yeah it's it's a gross concept for bands to be toying with and I want to get good at it yeah and I, and I think it also prevent you know it, it can screw with people like when new records come out and I hear them and my friends will ask me what you think of it I'm like I'm not going to tell you like yeah. go go listen to it yeah. don't don't read what 30 people on the internet said about it yeah. before you've had a chance to put ears on it because that's going to it's going to color yeah. your thoughts on it like yeah I mean there were some great I, I love the new Spoon record I think a lot of people liked it but there were some people you know re- reviews wise that were kind of like do I care about Spoon anymore or whatever and I know people that then listen to the new Spoon record and it's like they couldn't mm-hmm. admit it self admittedly they were like yeah I can't really listen to it without thinking that interview and I'm like Come on, man, if this record just came out, you didn't know who this band yeah. was, and I threw it your way, you'd be super stoked about this. Yeah, you know? I, I, and perhaps it's going against my profession. I don't read reviews, ever. Yeah. I hate them. Yeah. Because it's like, there's, you know, it's all about relating it to what, what environment you're listening in, and yeah. I think people do themselves a disservice. And then you think about things that, like, ended up being cultural and, and music and sonic shifts, like... I and our, our whole band loves Pinkerton. Pinkerton mm-hmm. got just demolished. In the I remember press it. Yeah, it got out. destroyed when it came out. And then you know, I would call it like one of the raddest records that rock has ever kind of like put out, at least in modern-ish times. And what happens now to a record that gets smashed like that? You know, like does it? Does, is there that chance for some weird like ten year later discovery kind of whatever? Like, is there something like that that's happened since? I don't think Modern. so. I don't think that like kind of later discovery is really around anymore because there's there. I think it just gets swept away way too quickly. Yeah, now. Even the stuff that gets reviewed positively gets swept away pretty. You fast. know, you, you have records that are winning Grammys. Not that that is any benchmark for quality, but yeah. you know, two years from now, nobody's going to remember that record. But there are bands that won Grammys in the last four years that I'd never heard of. Yeah, and it wasn't like Norwegian dark death metal. Something sure, that. it was like. Who is this band that just won Best Alternative? Like, or, yeah. you know, what I mean, like, pretty. I feel like I should know, kind of know. And it was like I've never heard this band name until right now. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah, and again, yeah, they'll be forgotten. Yeah, within the decades. So, yeah. on to brighter things, though, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Let's little, get real complaining. Yeah, yeah. A, little, a little dark. Yeah. Um, you know, so so one of the lyrics that uh, I really really dug and and was uh, when you said there's no generation, everybody quit. Yeah. Is that kind of you looking out at what's going on today or did it come from somewhere totally different? No, yeah, it's kind of mean, like being bummed on sort of yeah. like sort of our, and I say our, I'm, I'm 36. Mm-hmm. I kind of think of myself in a weird middle spot generationally. But, yeah, everything's for sale. Everything's about like, you know, it's it's there's not a counterculture now. 
there mm -hmm. is a like literally the people that would have filled the roles of like the countercultural kids or whatever love Facebook and they love Instagram and they want approval and they want they want everyone to like them and mm -hmm. they want something that's been successful it's like well you know that's good because a million people liked it right. or like a million people bought it or whatever and there's just not this there's kind of been this thing where it's like okay you're young you you kind of think everything anyone else has done before you sucks and you try to throw it away then you get a little bit wiser and you go actually some of it's fine but what we did was we push we pushed the ball forward a little mm -hmm. bit by being young like a-holes basically you know and yeah you know, punk rock yeah and there's just not that now just being now a teenager like, yeah now it's like i've got internet porn i've got facebook i've got yeah people like, i don't know like amazon i can get what i like there's no there's no like i wish there was that i know somewhere in one city some guy can get that thing yeah i'm just stuck in middle america not you know whatever and sure it's like i can get that cool all right like there's no like local culture mm -hmm. everything is also global like instantly globalized and again if it's not globally successful then it's not worthwhile you know like yeah it's like oh that's cool you're wearing those pants weird yeah okay we're gonna put it on a fashion blog no one reacted so that's stupid you should wear your pants sure way or something you know and it's all about like instant acceptance and sort of mainstreaming and if something doesn't hit mainstream or some you know whatever viral or whatever you know like you want to call it it's not actually worthwhile. There, were, there was the flip side of that, where people were kind of basically just like elitist assholes or whatever, you know? Yeah. But I kind of want them back. I want the elitist assholes back. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, because I remember, you know, we're about the same age growing up, you know, yeah. and there were like a few local bands that were just amazing. Yeah. And, you know, when you got out and you started meeting people from other cities, hey, have you ever heard these guys? And, and it just... It made things a little more genuine. I think there was more vibrancy then. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, cool. Well, that's the, you know, that's like the Detroit, you know, suburbs sound. That's kind of weird. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and that I think is something you can look back on and say that was great. Because in the 70s, you could listen to a sound and say, that is Detroit rock and roll. Right. Versus that's Cleveland rock and roll. And that's right. that's the New York sound. And now right. it's just all Yeah, everybody hears mediocre. whatever, anything that might be halfway good is instantly on the internet and mm -hmm. instantly getting like evaluated of like well how quickly is it catching on or whatever yeah so you guys tour relentlessly um yeah. it, are there places you guys haven't been yet that you're like we need to get there we need to play there i mean we just generally want to get out of the states yeah we, we went to the uk for like five shows i think and yeah just kind of i mean there's a lot of people that like hear or maybe hear one song or kind of get turned on to us and they kind of come in just expecting to have that experience where it's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh, this is the song I know. Okay, yeah, sure. participate. And they kind of actually get fully turned on, you know. And so it's um, that's a big part of what we do for sure. Um, and right now it's that's basically all like United, like continental United States. Uh -huh. Every once in a while the, the great hassle of trying to get across the Canadian border or whatever. But... Um, yeah, that that I mean, I have I love Central and South America, so I'd love to even like start getting down that way. Mm -hmm. And we actually do have hopes that we're going to be doing like a more serious Canadian tour. But just in general, get getting out of the the continental U.S. and kind of 
can spread our special love with the uh, people. We have, yeah, what, eight states left that we haven't hit? That no. Really? I, I thought so. it was like one continental and then Alaska and Hawaii. Well, in terms of where we actually have done Played. shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking okay, of, yeah, yeah we've, well, we've, we've driven tried. through. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think if, we, yeah, if it's just the ones we haven't driven through, I think it's maybe just Maine at this point. Yeah. And then Hawaii and Alaska. Yeah. In terms of shows, yeah, I think we're at like 42. Nice. I don't know. Something like that would be. Yeah, I guess we should, <laughs> do it. We should go full continental. Yeah. Um, continental breakfast. Yeah. Well, that would be a good. Yeah, we'd just do early morning tour. Continental <laughs> breakfast. That would be pretty good. Show shows starts at show. 7.30. Yeah. yeah. Shows are over 11. at 9.30. <laughs> yeah. You'll be able to go to work in time. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah. the time. Thanks, man. This really fun. My thanks again to Jay Roddy and Steve for making time to chat. Check out their new record. And if they are coming to your town, be sure to check them out. They are so good live. Now, of course, before we get out of here, I have your ear fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each and every episode, I give you an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the idea that these days everybody is so busy, music has become a background task. You're, you're driving somewhere, you're at the gym, you're, you're not completely paying attention to the music, and this is about taking some time each week to listen to an album for the sake of the album alone. This week, I've got a monster of a record for you. It is Eric Dolphy's brilliant 1964 recording, Out to Lunch. If you're unfamiliar with Eric Dolphy, he played alongside Andrew Hill on the Point of Departure record. He's on Coltrane's Village Vanguard session. He plays flute, bass clarinet, alto sax. He was really the first person to solo on bass clarinet. The guy is an icon of jazz, to say the least. Adding more to his mystique, if you will, he recorded five records, all of them good, in just four years before his untimely death due to a mistake in a German hospital. We can talk about that down the line, but... In those four years, he really rewrote everything about jazz and contributed so much. And this record is not only his best, but it is absolutely essential to the progression of the jazz genre. Whether you want to call this avant, I can hear that. But for me, I I think this is free jazz and I think this is about as good as free jazz gets. Even amongst his free jazz peers, he was definitely one of the most eccentric. And when he switches the tempo mid-solo and then he does it again and again, this record is really, it's a dazzling treat for your ears. He'll do that and then he's going to add seemingly random sound effects, you know, squeaks and other sort of non-musical elements. And when that happens, this record gets catapulted into a universe all its own. If you're wondering where people like Frank Zappa and even Tom Waits got some of their ideas from, this record is very much a touchstone in terms of creating soundscapes around melodies and kind of just letting music literally go in every single direction. Eric Dolphy out front is awesome. Regardless of what instrument he's on, and he plays three instruments on this record, the mood is instantly set and... On these songs, there's just, there's a lot of movement. You can feel a walk. Sometimes it's a skip. Sometimes it's a stagger. But that sense of movement is really strong and really apparent. And while obvious harmonies might be nice, sometimes you need to dig a bit deeper to find it. And other times, well, Eric Dolphy proves that the song can survive just fine without it. It comes down to the idea that if the group of musicians is clicking and, oh, does this lineup click, it's going to be a good track. 
Names like Sonny Rollins and Freddie Hubbard are both on board for this recording, and none other than the great Bobby Hutcherson sits in on vibraphones. Like a lot of the late 50s, early 60s jazz albums, this is a roll call of the great jazz luminaries, and all of them are in top form here. This really is free jazz perfection in terms of how they execute these compositions. And even after listening to this record, who knows how many times, I still find myself going like, whoa, or damn, at different points. It is that special and that good. The album kind of has it all for jazz. It's got killer drum solos on the opening track, uh, the dueling sounds on Something Sweet and Tender. There's hard bop. Like I said, it's free jazz. I mean, this record is really something else, and no, not the Cannonball Adderley something else. It's a different something else. I will say a little bit of a warning. This record is not at all an entry point into jazz. I don't I don't want to make it sound elitist or that you need some pre-qualifications to listen to it because there's no music you need that for, but... If you don't have a lot of exposure to jazz, it might be a little difficult to get into this. So you may want to first go, I don't know, Coltrane's Giant Steps and Dave Brubeck's Time Out are where I tend to send people when they're like, oh, I've never listened to jazz. Where should I start? Those are those are some of my favorites. You might want to go to this after it's it's I'm not saying you can't instantly get it, but you may find a more satisfying listen if you have a bit of exposure to jazz before this. Regardless. It is absolutely a brilliant record. It is essential to the development of so many styles. So if you don't know Out to Lunch, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. Once again, thanks to Jay Roddy for stopping by. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under EarFuel. And you can find me on Twitter at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. That's it for this edition of EarFuel. Share and enjoy. (laughs) 